praise tonight. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. What a mighty God that we serve. I would hate to have been in this thing as long as I have and have not seen the miraculous or have not ever been healed or seen other people heal. I'm glad that our God is still a healer. He's still in the miracle business. He likes flexing his muscles and blessing people beyond their imagination. I believe that every time the doctor shakes his head and says, I'm sorry to give you the bad news, that God starts smiling. An opportunity to reveal my power, my goodness, and my mercy. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The Lord good. Amen. Greet you tonight, this Thursday night, Bible study night. Greet our visitors, all of you in Jesus' name. Trust that you're having a good week. Any week in Jesus is better than a week without him. Thank you, Lord. So we're glad to be here tonight to give God the praise and worship that he is so worthy of. And we have a few announcements, of course, because this is Marathon Weekend, Yard Sale Weekend. And uh, my wife is meeting all of you that will come and help her tomorrow set up. She generally comes at 4.30, tomorrow's at 2.30. And uh, by 12 o'clock Saturday, she will be a worn-out frazzle. And I will have to take her home and make her sit down or lay down. God is good. We want to be a blessing to Tupelo Children's Mansion. All the money goes to the orphanage in Tupelo. And I know they appreciate it so much, and they have so many needs. Tomorrow night's rally in Naples. I don't know who all is going. I know that the lounge are going. They will bring us back a report uh, about that. Uh, also, Saturday evening, 6 o'clock, is family prayer. So uh, if you want to be a part of that, we appreciate it. I think I got everything done that I was supposed to do. If not, I will hear about it later. Well, I know. We'll do that later. If I tell them now, they'll forget. So. You know, the, you know the routine after Thursday night service before yard sale. We take all that stuff that's back there, bring it out here and all the tables. And uh, we do it as quickly as possible, right? All right. Lord bless you. Let's uh, have our ushers come receive an offering.
we're going to pray for all the people that didn't give in the offering tonight. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord, you're so good. Thank you for letting us be in your house tonight. Thank you for your word in advance. Thank you for blessing us that we have something to put in the offering pan. Thank you for everything you've done. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Tonight we're going to do part two of our study on angels and the cross and how the angels related to uh, the things that our Messiah did that purchased our salvation and redemption. The use of angels, God using them throughout the Bible is evidence. They're practically just everywhere. And so obviously if we're going to do a very detailed, thorough study on angels, take more than two lessons, but two will be adequate for what we're presenting. Hebrews chapter 1, 6 and 7. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Lord bless you. may be seated. Didn't, didn't Brother John do a great job Sunday? He uh, broke some new ground Sunday, and, and uh, it's only up from there, brother. Appreciate you. So angels are spirit beings. They have uh, been created by God for very specific purposes. And um, what little understanding that we have about them, they uh, are different in the way God created them. They appear different. They look different if, if we could see them. Um, and God made them, customized them for whatever their purpose is. Uh, within his kingdom. One kind of angel that we read about in the Bible are seraphim, and we talked about seraphim last Thursday night, and uh, we're not going to go into great detail, of course. If we do a lot of review, then we only have, have near enough time to get through this tonight. So hopefully uh, you remember from last Thursday night, you can go back and look at it online uh, to review but seraphim were highly vocal angels. They were angels that were very demonstrative in their perpetual worship of God. <coughs> if you want to know how is a proper and acceptable way to worship God, then look at how the angels worship, number one. Number two, go read the Psalms. Make a loud sound on the cymbals. Everything was loud and boisterous uh, and vocal, demonstrative in praise and in worship unto God. Not silence, not quiet, not that there cannot be quiet times, but worship and praise is not silent or quiet. So another type of angel besides the seraphim, we didn't have time to get to last Thursday night, are the cherubim. Uh, cherubim are very interesting creatures, and they uh, uh, are mentioned 92 times in 13 uh, books of the Bible. So that means they have a very significant role to play within God's kingdom. They first appear in the book of Genesis in the third chapter. I'm sure you're very familiar with this, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth, that's Adam, from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man 
and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Uh, I, I don't think that the cherubim needed the sword. It's significant in some ways. Just the cherubim standing there would have been good enough. But he was given a flaming sword that went in all different directions. And I'm sure Adam, whatever thought he had about attempting to reenter the garden, uh, quickly left him as soon as he seen that angel and the flaming sword standing at the entrance to the garden. They also appear, cherubims do, in the tabernacle in the wilderness. In fact, they're all throughout the tabernacle that Moses would build in the wilderness. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 18, And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work, shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub of the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. In other words, the mercy seat was between the two cherubims. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. According to uh, this, the cherubim have wings as well as the seraphim. Remember, the seraphim have six wings. With twain they cover their feet, with twain they fly, and with twain they cover their face because they are in the presence, uh, the ultimate presence of Almighty God. The cherubim have wings as well. If we would go to the book of Ezekiel, we had a vision of the cherubim. According to the vision of Ezekiel, the cherubim have four wings. Uh, we're not going to argue about that point one way or the other. It's not that important. But they're guardians of the glory of God. The God's appointed protectors are guardians of his holiness and of his glory. That's why they were over the Ark of the Covenant and their wings went over the mercy seat and touched and their faces were looking at one another and between was the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25, 22 says, And there will I meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Cherubims also appeared in the tabernacle and the temple, embroidered on the tapestries that hung in the uh, sanctuary. Everywhere that you went throughout the tabernacle and the temple, you would see images either carved or embroidered uh, everywhere in the temple. You wouldn't see those that were above the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat because only the high priest was privy to see that. In fact, whenever they would have to move the tabernacle from one place to another, uh, the sons and descendants of Kohath would back in and cover the ark with the veil. They would never see it. They would never look at it. And they would transport the ark from to the next location and then remove the veil again without looking at the ark of the covenant. So only the high priest would get to see those cherubim that were placed there. So while it's difficult to draw distinct and hard, fast descriptions of the angels. In fact, I don't believe that God really wanted us or intended us to be able to do that. 
I think that it's safe to say, pertaining to them, that they are mystical, transcendent, intelligent creatures who are unequivocally devoted to their creator. They're not forced laborers. They're not slaves. They are totally committed to the God that created them and for the purpose to which God created them. And uh, I'm glad for that. I'm glad for that because we are the same. We're committed. We're not prisoners. We're not slaves. We're not tied to this. Nobody's forcing us to live a godly and a holy life. We do so because of our love for our Creator, our Savior, and for all that He's committed uh, to saving our soul and providing us a place in heaven. But trust me when I say that there's a lot more to the angels than what we will be talking about in these two uh, succinct Bible studies. But the real issue that I felt led to bring to you was concerning the angels and the cross. Because as I uh, have thought, meditated, and studied about the cross, I have wondered and pondered so many times about how the angels were dealing with all of this that was being done to their creator, to their Messiah, to God that was manifest in the flesh. And what I have uh, uncovered to the best of my ability is what I will be presenting to you here tonight. Psalms chapter 8, verses 3 through 6, says, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? Now, I don't believe that that's intended to make us feel small, but it does anyway, doesn't it? Makes us feel rather insignificant. What is man compared to the entire whole of God's creation? But then verse 5 is written, For thou hast made him, that's man, a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him, that's man, with glory and honor. We, are, we might be made of dirt, but we're worth more than that. We might have been made from the dust of the ground, but we're much more valuable than that to God. Thou madest him, that's man, to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. So you may not feel very important, but God has put a lot of authority, placed a lot of authority in you. He's placed a lot of things under our feet. And I'm speaking now uh, of the redeemed of God. He's put a lot of things under our feet, and that includes serpents and scorpions. They're under us. We have authority over the kingdom of darkness. One commentator wrote concerning Psalms 8, 3 through 6, and said, Such was man as he came out of the hands of his maker in his prime evil state. He was lower than the angels because by his body he was allied to the earth and to the beast that perished. But by his soul, which is immortal, he was near akin to the angels. So although man has been crowned with glory and with honor, even though man has been endowed with noble faculties and capabilities, until the redemption of our body, ladies and gentlemen, we will remain 
lower than the angels. Lower than the angels. When it comes to an angel, it's yes, sir, and no, sir. When it comes to an angel, whatever you say goes. Because we, God has made us, we do not have dominion over the angels. We are made a little lower than the angels. So while David chose to use the word hezer in the 8th Psalm to describe our creative alignment with the angels, which places us, again, a little lower than them, according to what I read in the Bible, according to what I know about the angelic community. We're more than a little lower. We're a lot lower than the angels. We're, as uh, Mr. Fusillo used to say, we're huge lower. It's huge. Big difference. Some of you don't have a clue what I'm talking about, but that's okay. That's okay. We're a lot lower. Yeah, a lot, lot. Everybody say a lot. Let's turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews is a fascinating, most fascinating book of the Bible. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made, talking about Jesus now, talking about Messiah, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son? Of course, he didn't. This day have I begotten thee. He never said that. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. In the second chapter of Hebrews, verse 9, then it says of Jesus, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So in his humanity, in his human body, he was lower than the angels. But in his divinity, he was so much better than the angels. See, he was both God and man at the same time. In one respect, he was lower than they were, but in another respect, he was so much better than they were. Angels cannot die. And since Jesus had to die in order to shed his blood, that holy child that was conceived of the Holy Ghost and that was born of Mary in Bethlehem had to be lower than the angels or he would not have been able to to die. Now the Bible says it is impossible that the grave could hold him. That's another story altogether. 
because you cannot kill God. You cannot kill God. But they killed his body. So the angels are immortal. In the second chapter of Hebrews 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself also likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Now that excites me. It really does. And delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Now, as God, he could have just flicked the devil, the devil into nowhere land, flicked him out. But as man, he was going to deal with this devil, with this Lucifer, with these principalities and powers in a different way. It was at Satan's bidding that man, more specifically Adam, traded the eternal life that God had given him and Eve for just one bite from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, he traded eternal life for certain death. He traded the blessing of God for a curse, and then he passed that on to his progenitors, and we have inherited that curse from him in our own life. So he was separated from God by his act of rebellion and disobedience and received the curse of death. And so it's fitting that since a man took that from us, it would be a man that would give it back to us. It was a man that brought a curse upon mankind. It would be a man that would take the curse away from mankind. Jesus Christ was that man. He was the one that stepped up. He's the last man, Adam, who was able to perform. He's the only one that could have performed that act. So in order to accomplish all of this, God took upon him the seed of Abraham. He didn't take upon him the nature of angels. Now, there were times throughout the Bible that he appeared unto men as an angel in the form of an angel, a theophany. But when he came to save us, to save man, to remove the curse, he came by the seed of Abraham, not by the nature of angels. I want to say here that in creation, God established the bounds of our habitation. Paul talked to the uh, Epicureans and Greeks about that in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill. He elaborated on that uh, to these philosophers and, and so on. But God established the bounds of our habitation. So he established the rules of engagement. And so he was, going to, he was going to act within the rules of engagement that he had established himself for all men when he went up against Satan. He went up against him in the body or the seed of Abraham. Now having said that, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, you being dead, in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And here it is. 
And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Jesus refused to use the power and means that was at his disposal as deity and as divinity to defeat the devil. He refused even to use the power and the nature of angels in order to defeat the devil. He went up against the devil in the weakness of his human body, and he defeated him as a man, not as God. He defeated him as a man, not as an angel. He used his human weakness to destroy the powers of hell. Can you say amen? As Zacharias, a priest, was in the temple, he was attending to the altar of incense, there appeared unto him uh, an angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord was standing on the right side of the altar. That would have been the altar of incense. That was Zacharias's duty as a priest to burn incense upon the altar in the holy place. We'll pick up the story in Luke 1, 12 and 13. When Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, naturally, and fear fell upon him. I, I, I really can't explain how he knew he was an angel, but he knew. I don't know if he glowed. I don't know if he had wings. I don't know. But Zacharias knew this is an angel, and it's, it, he was afraid, and which any of us probably would be. But the angel says to him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Now, we know Elizabeth was barren, and we also know that Zacharias and Elizabeth were praying for children because the angel said, Your prayer is heard. What was he talking? He wasn't praying for a new Cadillac. He was praying for a child, more specifically, as a Levite, a son. We know that this was the same angel that appeared to Mary and appeared to Joseph in a dream. It was Gabriel. We know it because of verse 18 and 19. Zechariah said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man. The angel should have said, Because I just told you so. But he didn't. For I am an old man, my wife, well stricken in years. And the angel answered, answering, said unto him, I am Gabriel. And stand, or that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee to show thee these glad tidings. So, what is Gabriel doing when he's not on a mission bringing somebody a message from God? He is standing in the presence of God. Wow. Wow. That, that is incredible. Verse 26 and the sixth month. The angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored of the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Behold, thou shalt conceive, verse 31, in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. <coughs> now, because time is slipping away, we'll just kind of skip over some of this stuff. He also appeared to Joseph in a dream. Joseph was naturally troubled and disturbed. I mean, who would believe that story, right? And so even though uh, I, I believe that he trusted Mary, but that's pretty outlandish. Uh, 
Sister Bruce, if you come to me with a story like that, I'm going to need an angel to confirm it. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. I love you and I trust you, but make sure that an angel comes to me as well. So what happened that night that Jesus was born? We really don't know anything between that time and, and the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. But once again, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8, the angels appear again. There they are again. I, I can't imagine that, that Joseph and Mary uh, were not assigned an angelic uh, protection during the nine months of her pregnancy. Those were very stressful times, very difficult times. All the world was taxed. Nothing has changed, has it? And so I believe angels are there, but they're not, they're not mentioned to us. But then there was in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. The angel of the Lord didn't come upon the, the rich, the well-to-do, uh, the, those in, that could offer political favors. The angel of the Lord didn't appear to kings and royalty and nobility. They appeared to shepherds that were in the field, keeping their flock by night. They were afraid. The angel says, don't be afraid. It's, we're just angels. We're not going to hurt you. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. This shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, good will toward men. What an incredible sight that must have been. I think we know enough about angels and their uh, mission, their assignment, their purpose, that angels are always near the redeemed, especially when we're in a crisis or when we're conducting kingdom business. Angels will be near. Now they will seldom make their presence known, they will seldom announce who they are and why they are there. Uh, they have saved us from things that we are not even aware that they have saved us from. I know one night on the way home from church on a Thursday night, pulling out from Christopher 41, light turned green, arrow it right away. But I just happened to look up and here come this, I'm not supposed to call them idiots, but here, they, here he came, Phew, slammed on his brake. I stopped my brake. If I hadn't have stopped, he would have T-boned us going 40, 50 miles an hour. Tell me that there was an angel said, hey, dummy to me, look to your left. So all that were not aware of their presence during the 30 years after Jesus was born while he was growing up in Nazareth, I have to believe the angels were always present. They were always near uh, somewhere near. After Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, uh, this is when we start to get into things that are important, and it took me too long to get here, but here we go. He was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. By all appearances, Jesus did not permit the angels to accompany him into the wilderness. He went into the wilderness by himself, 
without an angelic accompaniment. It was just him alone in the wilderness, the seed of Abraham in the wilderness by himself. Hebrews 2 says, verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. When, when the Lord says, I know what you're going through, he knows exactly what we're going through. In one of these temptations, Satan accused Jesus of cheating. That's really what he did. He said to him, this is not fair. You are cheating because you're using the angels to compensate for your humanity, which what he was not doing. The accusation is found in Matthew 4 and 5, then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Believe it or not, uh, Satan was quoting Psalms chapter 9, which says virtually the same thing because uh, Psalms chapter 9 is a messianic prophecy. But in the case of the wilderness, it was not true because Jesus encountered and endured 40 days and nights in the wilderness by himself without the presence of the angelic community. And I believe this provides us with some insight into how devoted the angels are to the care of their Lord. They're ready to, if, if, he, if he snubs his foot on a stone, he, he'll never, he'll, he, if he falls, he'll never touch the ground. They're ready to catch him and, and stand him back up. It shows us how dedicated the angels are to his protection. So Jesus endured his wilderness experience without them. Hebrews 4.15, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And why is that? Because in all points he was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted in all points. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life, took it all, received it all. His flesh had the same appetites and desires and lusts that any flesh has, that any man or woman has. He was tempted in all points. I'm glad that's in there. It's indisputable. Now, how could that happen if the angels just had a wall around him? I think I would fare better if I had an angelic wall around me. But then there are a lot of things I wouldn't experience in life that I need to experience to grow Matthew 4.11, then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Last week, we talked about how Isaiah saw the Lord sitting high upon a throne. We talked about the seraphims who cried one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, tonight, we've introduced the cherubim 
who were the assigned, appointed guardians of God's glory uh, and majesty. It must have been very disturbing to these angels when the scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers and the hypocrites challenged their Lord's authenticity, authenticity, excuse me, and identity. It must have been difficult for them to stand idly by while the authority and deity of Jesus Christ was constantly scrutinized and questioned. It must have been hard for them because remember what they were made for, remember what their assignment was. I can picture Michael as he stands with his army. Michael's the archangel of war, how he would stand at that during those times poised to descend on Christ's enemies and to completely wipe them out and annihilate them. The image of Judas comes into my mind as he goes out of the upper room uh, after Jesus washed his feet, after he partook of the, the, uh, the uh, Passover meal with Christ and the other disciples. And uh, as he goes quickly under the cover of darkness to the Sanhedrin uh, to negotiate the price of which he was going to sell out his Lord and how he made the deal and to tell them uh, I will, I, will, uh, I will show you who he is. It must have been difficult as he did that for the angels to just not step in and not say, where are you going, buddy? What do you think you're up to? You're not going to do this. We're not going to let you do this. It must have been hard for Michael to not intercept Judas and, 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 and slay him right there in the road. Because nothing has ever or could ever harm or injure the creator of the ends of the earth, because God is a spirit, but now he's in an earthly body. Now he's of the seed of Abraham. Now he has become a man. He indwells a man, the Messiah, who was vulnerable and subject to pain and to death like every other man. Things have changed. The situation's different now, totally different. So because the Sanhedrin had attempted to take Jesus on several occasions but failed, Judas gave them a sign and said, look, uh, the one that I kiss, he's the Messiah. Now, why did they do that? Because Jesus uh, could just slip out. He could just vanish right before their eyes and slip through the crowd and be gone. They tried to take him numerous times. This time, Judas says, I'm going to pinpoint him with a kiss. I will betray him with a kiss, with a kiss. Matthew 26, 49, forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. That's when Peter drew his sword. What were the angels thinking? We can't even move. We're standing at attention. He won't let us budge. Our swords are in our sheath. And here Peter, little old Peter, pulls his sword and he cuts off Malchus's ear. Of course, Jesus picked it up and put it back on him. It's almost comical, isn't it? Here, let me help you with that. But he healed, he healed an enemy. He could have turned and said he had it coming. No. I challenge you. I challenge you tonight. 
if not tonight, tomorrow, to read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and say, I've got that. I challenge you to read it and say, I've got that. I got that down pat. Because I wonder all the time when I'm praying in tongues and praying in the spirit, what do I sound like in heaven? Do I sound like a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal? I think it's good to wonder about those things, don't you? So Matthew 26 and 52, Jesus said unto him, that's Peter, put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword, but then he makes this statement. Thinketh thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? You think I can't just simply utter the words? And as lightning descends from heaven, 12 legions of angels will be standing here in armor, weapons drawn, ready to protect me from these men. You think I can't do that? Of course, we know that he could have. So I want to talk to you for a few minutes about the 12 legions of angels. Before I do, I want to address one other issue, John 18. Conversation with Pilate, where Pilate answers and says, Am I a Jew, thine own nation? And the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. It's important to note that tonight. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. Jesus was not referring to the 11 disciples. What could 11 disciples who had two swords among them do against the force, the mob that came out to arrest and apprehend Jesus? Obviously not very much. When Jesus spoke these things to Pontius Pilate, he was talking about the 12 legions of angels that were standing poised to descend upon the enemies of Christ if he even uttered or breathed the words. We briefly mentioned, I think, last week the unmitigated power of an angel. I mean, one angel, when David sinned, killed 17,000 Hebrew men before he stopped, God stopped him with the sword drawn, standing at the field of Arunah, remember that. That was one angel. How much strength do you suppose an angel possesses? How much strength? I mean, I mean I, I'm sure, but by our terms, it's immeasurable. It's immeasurable. I can tell you this. The gym that I go to, there are not enough weights in that gym if the angels went there to work out. Their strength is immeasurable. They do not have all power, but God has given them power and strength beyond our imagination. But then the question, what is a legion? Well, if you look it up, a legion was actually derived from the Roman army who established 6,000 legionnaires or Roman soldiers would make up a legion, and a Roman general could assign even more than 6,000, but 6,000 was the bare minimum 
that were comprised a legion of Roman soldiers. When you get to the demon-possessed man in Gadara, we automatically assume that because Jesus allowed them to go into a herd of swine, 2,000 swine, he ran down a hill and drowned himself, that there were 2,000 devils in this man. No, the demon said, my name is Legion. That man, the reason he could break chains, the reason he could lift tombstones out of their place and dig up dead bodies, the reason they could not hold him was because he was possessed by 6,000 demons. His strength was immeasurable. So a legion of angels. What could one legion of angels do if they got together? Worship team, you can join me in the talk. I'm, I'm actually, thank the Lord who's helped me to get this far this fast. Simple math concludes that 12 legions of angels would make up a minimum of 72,000 angels. Angels that are armed and equipped and ready for war. So if a legion of angels were unleashed upon this world, if they were unfettered and completely released upon this world, they could destroy this whole world. Twelve legions. Now, Jesus said, look, we're talking about a mob that's come out to get me. We're talking about the Roman army. We're not talking about the whole world. Twelve legions of angels would have been overkill. But the point is, he could have he prayed to the Father, and he would have sent them in a moment's notice. So the question then arises, what would be the combined strength or capability of 72,000 warring angels? Well, glad you asked. Isaiah 37, 36, and the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. One angel entered into the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. One angel obliterated the entire Assyrian army. One angel, one angel, 6,000 angels. If we extrapolate, do a little bit of simple math. I wish Brother uh, Magama was here. He's a mathematician. He could back me up on this. A little simple math, a little calculator working here. 6,000 angels, one legion, could annihilate an army of 1,110,000,000 men. 12 legions of angels, it's almost off the charts. It's 13,300,000,000 men. The population of the earth is only right now a little over 8 billion. And Jesus said, I can just pray to the Father and he will send 12 legions of angels. He was letting them know, I could, but I'm not going to. They are there, they are ready, they're standing at attention, ready to move at a moment's notice. 
thank God that Jesus made the decision to drink the cup of suffering. Thank God that he settled that issue once and for all during three hours of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the other hand, I'm convinced that it took a great deal of angelic restraint to not save Jesus from his ordeal. And it was only because of their undying loyalty and obedience to their creator that they were willing to stand down. And since they were standing down, y'all can stand up. But I think it's important to note, and this is really what, I guess I could have caught this Bible study in eight minutes. Wow. Because this is really the bottom line. How difficult was it for the angels to watch the trial, the scourging, and the crucifixion of the Messiah? I guarantee you they didn't watch it with stone faces. I don't know if angels have the ability to cry, but if they do, they were weeping. I'm sure they did not watch this ordeal with indifference. They were immortal beings who never suffered physical pain once in their lives, but now I think they may be feeling pain for the very first time. I believe that they watched Jesus be crucified in horror. I believe that they watched the crucifixion. I believe when the soldiers smote their Lord and placed the crown deeply embedding those thorns in his brow, I believe the angels were wrenching and shaking their heads in dismay at the suffering of their creator. While I cannot prove it, I believe that the voices of the seraphim that once cried one to another about the holiness and glory of Almighty God that caused the post of the door to shake and shudder, that now their voices are heard in lamentation and weeping and travail and mourning over the horror of this that they were observing. Aghast, the cherubim would have been frantically flapping ruffling whatever the proper word is, spreading their wings as they stood in abject helplessness, unable to stop this, unable to help him, unable to minister to him in any way. He said, stand back. I will do this without you. I must do it for the sake of mankind, for God so loved the world. Praise God. The point of all of this is simply, I think, perhaps as simple as it may sound, that we should never, ever, 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 ever take the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior for granted. We should never, never be able to talk about it, think about it, read about it with, without feeling some of what those angels felt honest with you, I, I know the word of God is inerrant, infallible, eternal, unchangeable, but every time I read uh, in the gospels of Jesus' arrest and his maltreatment when he's standing before 
Pilate, I am, I'm just, there's something in me hoping that it goes different this time. That it'll read different this time. But it never does. It always reads the same. What do you think I ought to do with Christ? Crucify him. Crucify him. in spite of it all, thank God that he did. Thank God that he did what he did. For none of us would be here tonight. And, and uh, whatever the angels incurred, three days later, they were shouting on the hills of glory when he came forth from death and hell with the keys, amen, in his hand. Amen. That's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be shouting. Amen. Because of an empty grave, an empty tomb. And you know what? He could have moved the stone himself. But he said, come on, buddy. And then he said, come on, buddy. Come on down here and move this stone out of my way. I'm getting ready to get out of here. He's using the angels, and he will continue to use them throughout the course of your and my lifetime. Let's give him glory tonight. Let's give praise unto the Lord. Thank you, Jesus.
Praise God. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. God is good. Now, here's what we're going to do. Gentlemen, ladies, there's so much stuff out back there. If we bring it out and put it in the center aisle, we're going to block up the center aisle. So when we bring it out, let's bring it all over to this side, get it out of the way so we can bring all the tables through and get the table set up. Everybody okay with that? All right. Brother Kalani, you're in charge of that. 